just before we start the show, I want to take an opportunity to invite you to join me for the Podfluence Weekly Newsletter, which is available both on LinkedIn and through the official newsletter channel. Now, if you are on LinkedIn and it's easier for you to follow there, then please just click on the link in the show notes, which will take you straight to Podfluence on LinkedIn, where you can subscribe for free and get weekly updates on Podfluence articles as well as episodes. If you would like to subscribe to the full newsletter where you'll get additional materials and, as my little incentive to you, my pre-podcast guest checklist for you to use when you're appearing on podcast shows so that you can be fully prepared every single time, then please click the link to the official newsletter in the show notes. Hope to see you there. Let's get on with the show. Hello, my name is Johnny Ball, and I'm a professional speaker and persuasive presentations coach who also happens to be somewhat obsessed with the tools and psychology of influence and persuasion. With a show that started as a project for Toastmasters, which is an international club for anyone who wants to come and practice public speaking skills, to over a year and a half later, I'm still having a great time marrying my passions for public speaking and the psychology of persuasion. As a lifelong learner myself, it is my hope that this show will help you to become an even more powerfully persuasive speaker and help you to future-proof yourself for the already ongoing AI revolution. This week, my guest is Leandre LaRouche, uh, which is a fantastic name, right? But he is all about helping people to get their books published. So I know you're going to get a lot of value for this. If you have ever thought about writing a book or you started writing a book and, like me, didn't get it quite finished yet, then you are going to love this episode. Leandre has great resources and tools for how you can get that book finished and out there and working for you, especially if you're looking to establish yourself as an expert. Now, if you are a speaker or you want to become a professional speaker in any way, having that book behind you is going to be one of the critical elements. It's often said that having a book is the best business card that you can possibly have. I am working on getting my book finished and really enjoying the process of writing it, getting into writing every single day, which I think is what you really have to do and perhaps where I was going wrong before. Leandro gives us some great tips in the show and some places that we can go and find out more. So sit back, relax, enjoy the show. Welcome to Speaking of Influence, the show where we're all about empowering you to become tomorrow's influential speakers and leaders today. Many podcasters now agree that live streaming is the future of podcasting. If you want to get started with live streaming, my recommendation and the channel I use is Restream.io. Check the link in the show notes and after your first live stream, you will receive a $10 Restream cashback. Well, welcome to Speaking of Influence. Thank you for joining us. Let's get straight into things today and welcome to the show, Leandre LaRouche. Hey, thanks for having me. I hope I did your name justice there. Well, so in French, it's pronounced uh, Leandre, but I, I don't have Leandre. any expectation that people around the world will pronounce it correctly. <laughs> and uh, it's funny because every single single country that I go to, they pronounce it differently. And it's just something that you, that you get used to. It's actually just a, a quick fun fact. It's funny because it's probably the most French name you could have and so my parents decided to <clears throat> give me that name. And I, I grew up in Quebec where everybody speaks French. And yet, when I was a teenager, the only thing that I wanted to do was get out of Quebec <laughs> and go and see the world. And so as soon as I got out of Quebec, nobody could pronounce my name. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. I, I think I, I've mentioned on a podcast before now that I generally don't get too many mispronunciations of my name. It's a, a fairly straightforward name and most people have come across, most people have come across John. However, I do still love hearing my name said with a French accent. And when I used to work in the airlines, a lot of my compatriots were French as well. And so it's, it's nothing quite as sweet as the sound of a, a French air stewardess saying, Johnny, Johnny. I used to love that. I miss it. I miss well, it. I mean, actually, <laughs> I, I love the way that Americans and British people say my name. I just, there's something to it. Even though it's wrong, <laughs> there's something to it. <laughs> Well, that's okay. Oh, yeah, I don't get too precious about people mispronouncing my name. Spanish people struggle with my last name for some reason. It's just a uh, pronunciation, not what you expect. Same as 
English people and Americans will struggle with yours, but you get used to it and there's no point getting too precious about these mm-hmm. things, right? But we didn't come here to talk about <laughs> our names so much, but it's a nice thing to start on. We did come here to talk about writing because that's what you do. Tell, tell us a little bit more about, well, a bit more about who you are and what it is you do. Absolutely. So I have a company called Trivium Writing and the goal with Trivium Writing is to give people the ability to write powerfully and without stressing so much about about the craft and the process. So I come from a an English literature background. I studied English literature and professional writing. And then I held a f- series of jobs. And so but I've always been I've always been a writer by profession. I've always been a writing tutor as well or coach in some capacities. And so my, my original goal with Trivium writing was to give people a process by which they can write and they can do it splendidly. And so that they can, they can have more influence. And so whether it be for, you know, book writing, I specialize in book writing, but, you know, they can use the methodology for, you know, creating content online. You know, you can apply, you can apply this to everything. But essentially, my goal is to Sounds good. simplify writing and teach people what I call the architecture of writing, because I, I strongly believe that writing isn't as hard as we sometimes think it is. And so my ultimate goal is always to simplify it as much as possible, to give that tool to people, because it's such an important tool and it's changed my life in so many ways. Fantastic. Uh, definitely important. That's one of the reasons why I was very much looking forward to speaking to, to you today as someone who uh, pertains to write stuff and has been working on a book, although never having quite managed to finish one yet. I think, you know, yeah, I should probably have a good chat with you. Maybe you can have Absolutely. <laughs> to tell us a little bit about what you generally write about. So there are three things that I really care about. And uh, these three things, they're philosophy politics and personal development. And I guess in a sense, they're all interrelated. And I guess you could say where my, where my obsession lies is any intersection between politics and personal development. And it's a, it's a, it's kind of a weird thing. A lot of people, they're like, well, how can, how can there be like personal development in politics? And like, what's the, what's the relationship? And this is, what I'm trying to uncover in my, in my writing. And so my first novel, uh, which is called Heterochrome, it's in French, and I published it back in 2017, was really a kind of coming of age philosophical novel where this protagonist went through this identity crisis and just kind of learned the, the nuances of, of human nature and What's interesting is that we often say, and this is true of fiction, and this is true of nonfiction as well, you write a first book, and this kind of encapsulates you and your work, and then everything that you write after that is kind of a spin-off of that book. It's kind of like the core. And it's funny because I'm working on a substantial nonfiction book right now, and the working title is The You Constitution, and it's a book exactly on politics and personal development. And it's, you know, to make a long story short, it's making a case about how, you know, we can be, we can have a fulfilling relationship with ourselves, with other people and with the world in general, even when we live in a world of chaos, even when we're polarized. And essentially the, the goal is for the book to give people a framework to look at the world so that they as an individual can help the world be a little less polarized. So anyway, this book has a lot to do with the original novel, the, the first novel that I published. And, you know, it's nonfiction, but the themes and the concerns, they're essentially, they're essentially the same. But instead of being more about personal development, it's a little more about politics. So that's what I love writing about. I love writing about business as well. A lot of my clients... A lot of them, they're business coaches, they're personal development coaches. So I'd say like the two big areas there for my business, they're business, personal development. As for myself, it's politics, philosophy, personal development. So do you find yourself doing quite a lot of writing for other people as well? 
Not so much anymore. I used to. I do. I do kind of partner up with my with my clients because I'm more than just a a writing coach and consultant. I'm really there to get them get them on stock. And so it's not just about teaching them the methodology. It's getting hands on with them. And with my company, we also provide revising, editing, all these kinds of things. So I do find myself doing a lot of writing for my clients and for other people a little bit. I don't do it so much anymore. I will say, so it, it depends exactly what you mean. I don't do, I don't really do ghost writing, at least at the moment. So it's not like I write something and somebody else get the credit, but I, I'm more interested in helping people develop their voice, develop their style. And sometimes as part of that, it means doing a little bit of writing for them here and there. Uh, but I'm there to help people develop their skills. Cool. What I really want to know up front, just one of the things I want to know at least, is why is it some people seem to find it so easy to knock books out and just publish and publish and publish? And some people, like me, really struggle to even get one book written. I think a lot of it must have to do with temperament and personality. So when you look at the writing process, it's supposed to, it's supposed to trigger some executive functions. So, I mean, obviously you're working with your memory, you're working with all these parts of the brain, you know, you, you process information, you translate information into words. So oftentimes we think, we think in images and then we want to translate those into words. And so you're working with your executive functions, but for some people, and I don't have any scientific explanation. That's actually something that I'm learning more about, you know, every single day. But for a lot of people, it triggers the limbic system, which is your emotions. And so that's really the problem that I see most of the time. People get emotionally involved in the process, which is, which is not a good thing to do. The emotion should go in the writing itself. And what I mean by that is, you know, good writing is a roller coaster of emotions. We should go through all the phases, all the feelings, everything in the writing. But the writing process itself, which is to say the productivity and the creativity, it shouldn't be an emotional process. It should be, you know, you get yourself to do it. And so one of the things that I, that I help clients with is understanding the process. Cause I, I hear a lot of people, I ask people what's difficult about writing and they say, Oh, the writing part. I say, well, here's the first problem. There's no writing part. You know, there's mm -hmm. so many different blocks. And so what I do is I break down that thing called writing in several, several steps, several blocks. And then we look at it sequentially. And I will say to me, it's clear that writing in some sense is exactly like math. I, I suck at math, but I know why. And it's because somewhere in my education, I missed something in that block that I needed to continue the sequence is missing. And if I want to be good at math, then I need to go back, figure out what that thing is, learn it, and then continue the sequence. But if I don't do that, it's going to be very, very hard. I'm going to beat myself. And the same thing is true with writing. So the company is called Trivium Writing and it stands for grammar, logic, and rhetoric. So it's the, the classical trivium according to the Greeks and yeah. it's the foundation for a classical education. And these, these are the main components of writing and you can break those down into like other, other blocks. But if you struggle writing, it's because there's something somewhere either in grammar, logic, or rhetoric that you haven't mastered and I, you need to find what it is and learn it and make sure that you can continue the sequence. So that's, mm. you know, and I, I try to assess that. I assess that as much as I can with my clients before we even get started so that we know exactly where the work is to be done. That's, that's important for me. I find once I start writing, I find the process quite easy is keeping the consistency going 
And the follow through is where I sometimes start to struggle a bit with that because other things start to get in the way. I'm the kind of person that's always got a number of projects on the go all the time. So what do you, what do you do to help people who are struggling like me with, with the consistency in their writing? Right. So, and it's a great question because that's something that I, that I fight myself every single day because I, I have so many ideas. I have so many projects. And so. I'm always tempted to start the one new thing or to like put things aside. And <clears throat> I'm going to say I was, I feel like I was lucky that I, well, lucky, you know, I feel like I was lucky to publish my first book at 21 because I truly believe that when it comes to book, it's, the, it's true in other aspects of life as well. But like you want to have something that you can look back to and finishing the first thing is the most difficult. And once you've done it, then you've proved it to yourself that you can do it and you realize it's not exactly as hard as you thought it would be. It's not exactly as long you thought it would be. So for myself, I, I'm a big proponent of the idea that we have one big idea and that at any single moment, there's one thing we should be writing about. And so I think a lot of it has to do with how we're thinking and it has to do with our grand vision. I was recently doing a live video on my Facebook profile and I was talking about what we can learn about writing from misunderstood people. And I was arguing that Elon Musk is probably the most misunderstood person on the planet right now. And I'll tell you why it's because you have a lot of people who aren't big fans of, um, capitalism, they, they cast him as an evil capitalist. And you have the people that are in love with capitalism and they say, he's a genius. He's the definition of capitalism because he's made <clears throat> billions of dollars, the second richest man on the earth. But what people don't realize on both sides is that, you know, Elon Musk, he had a grand vision for the future and he used capitalism as a means to achieve that. And so if you look at like how he spends his money, like he's not a He's not the greedy capitalist that you would think he is. It's really just like he uses capitalism as a means to achieve his grand vision. Now, where I'm going with this is that you have to think about, well, okay, so what's my grand vision and how does writing fit in? So how do I use writing as a means to achieve that grand vision? And so you have to check, you know, the book you're writing, for example, how does it compare with the other things? And so what's driving your grand vision forward the most? And once you've done that, and you know, for some people, you know, writing make more, makes more sense than for others. But if you're looking at like all the tools that you have in your arsenal of, and writing is one of them, then like what's driving your grand vision forward the most? And then that's where you should be. That's where you should be focusing on. And I think if you really nail that, it's going to become, it's going to become evident. And the other thing is it's basic, but just having deadlines. And by that, I mean, like you, it, it's easy to fix yourself, like a theoretical deadline. I mean, like actual deadline where you have to deliver. I'm writing a book right now. And basically I, I have pre-sold it to a, a school. And so like I have, it has to be delivered by a certain date. So like, there's no way I'm not finishing this book. Whereas there are some other writing projects I've, they've been taking a little longer. So like, I can't overemphasize the importance of real concrete deadlines. Like somebody has to hold you accountable. Yeah. 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 I teach a similar strategy for people who want to do events. They want to do live trainings and workshops <clears throat> or bigger events. And often when, it, when you think about doing, especially the first one, but even, you know, even in those earlier stages, it's better just to get the date booked in and hold yourself to it and put the pressure on yourself to have everything yeah. done than to just wait. So oh, I'm going to wait till I've got everything ready because there's no pressure to get everything ready and other things will get prioritized above it. So nothing, nothing locks you in quite like a, uh, a bit of a permanent deadline there. And I, I would agree completely. Yeah. And I think events are wonderful for that. I mean, I think they're the best because there's, you know, there's a date happens once has to, everything has to be done by then. If it's not, then you still do it. So it's, uh, it's almost kind of a perfectionism killer. 
Yes, I know that I was reading something recently, and I'm going to forget the name of the book, but it might come to me whilst we're speaking. But one of the things we're saying is in, in research that's been done on this is that one of the reasons why we leave things to the last minute very often, we even with deadlines, is, is, isn't because uh, we necessarily want to put a load of, load of stress on ourselves. It's just because we tend to work better under constraints. And so the less constraints we have, the harder we find things. Yeah. Like you go to a menu and a restaurant that has over a hundred options. You don't know what you want to eat. You go to a, a restaurant that has two options for dinner, A or B, mm -hmm. which you're going to pick. It's a lot easier. Yeah. And so the more constraints we have, the easier <clears throat> we tend to find things. So applying those constraints to ourselves, deadlines or whatever constraints you can think of actually really help us to get creative and to do things. Absolutely. And we'll bring I'm out the best in us. I'm a very indecisive person. There's a pizza place in Philadelphia where there's only one size, only one pizza it was my best pizza experience ever. Didn't have to make a choice. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I do believe that like, we can stretch time and like we basically get, and you know, I was talking about Elon Musk earlier. I don't know if it's he who said that maybe it's just like some wrongly attributed quote, but I read somewhere, you know, it's like, if you can find a way to like, take your 10 year plan and make it and make it happen in six months. It's like, it's actually possible because we like our mind basically does what we like stretch it to do. And I was, I was joking the other day. Well, I wasn't really joking, but it's because it, it's true. But like every time, like there's something, whether a writing task or any other task, you, you, you procrastinate because you think it's going to be so long. It's going to take so much effort. And then you do it and you realize it took you 15 minutes and then you hate yourself because <laughs> right. you're like, did I, did I just procrastinate on it for like a month? When yeah. It took no time at all. Constraints, yeah. constraints are really good. And yeah, I mean, they always say we, we always overestimate what we can do in a day but we underestimate what we can do in a year. And I think it's just yeah, like our absolutely. perceptions of time. It's just really weird. At least mine is really weird. And I think maybe that's a feature of like being a high achiever, but sometimes our notion of time is so, so weird. I'm certainly guilty every day of overestimating what I can achieve in a day. Uh, to find my, I always find myself wishing for more yeah. hours in the day, but, uh, but then they you never, they never seem later to and you're like, wow, did I do all of this? Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I'm getting better at tracking what I do. I actually use productivity planners and stuff now to keep a tracker. And it also helps me to get a bit more limited about being realistic, what I can get done in a day and letting go of stuff. I can't holding over to tomorrow, what can be held over and you know, find it just, just better. And you can look back and say, Oh wow. Yeah. I've actually done a lot. I've knocked a lot of things out of the park. Whereas, you know, I, I, I think I came from, wasn't so long ago in my life where I wasn't quite so motivated or self-empowered to move forward with so many things for myself. Let me ask you though, do you get people who perhaps come to you, they want to write a book and you mentioned about having this grand vision, perhaps they don't have that yet. And they know they want to write a book. They just don't know what, what it would be about or what their particular grand vision or topic would be. Yeah. It's something that, Does that we, happen? it's something that I, we, that we work on and, you know, we, we all have something basically like as individuals, we, we all hold these positions. We all have these beliefs and, you know, put, put these together properly and then you can have this grand vision. And so sometimes the, the grand vision isn't exactly clear to the client, but that's what we work on. And I use this analogy. And so so I call this working on the big idea. Like I said earlier, I think we have one big idea. Well, sometimes we have multiple big ideas, but I, I think of it very high hierarchically. So we have a big idea or multiple, and then everything else below is, you know, not as important. And so we can decide. So we write something about the big idea. And so everything else could be either another book or it could be supportive of the big idea. And so we, we work on that and the framework or the analogy, if you will, that I, that I like to use with clients to figure that out is like, think about the communities that you're a part of. You know, we often talk about like target audiences and you no know, truth be told, 
a lot of the marketing lingo and a lot of the business terminology is that is applicable in book writing. They're the same thing almost, but it's a different medium. So target audience and, you know, topics and all of these things, you know, we, we talk about them a lot, but it, it's not always obvious what they mean. And so the way that I found to really simplify this is that really you're just some person who's a part of different communities. Maybe there are, there are five of them, for example, and it goes back to the things that interest us. For me, it's philosophy, politics, personal development. And so I'm part of these communities and communities that are bound by pains and problems and interests that you know, that bind them together. And so I'm part of these communities and I am the sum of all these communities, excuse me. And my knowledge, my experiences, everything come from these communities. And I bring this to these communities as well. Now, these communities, when they gather together, they have conversations and every community has different conversations. So when I go to a community, I basically want to enter one of these conversations. And the cool thing is that they have these communities, they have knowledge in a couple of things, but there are some other areas where they lack knowledge. And so my unique contribution comes from my aggregation of everything, if you will. And so that allows me to have a unique take on the conversation they're having. Let me give you an example. If I go, if I go to the business community, well, they don't, they're not talking about philosophy, right? I, I love philosophy and I talk about philosophy with my philosophy friends. But then when I'm in the business community, then I think I can bring up something about philosophy that moves the conversation forward about business. Let's say it's, I don't know, we're talking about like our client success or like our client uh, fulfillment. And so maybe I'll talk about ethics and like our responsibility toward our, our clients. And so I, I'm using philosophy to drive the business conversation forward. And so I could do the, the, the same thing. I could use some business concept and the conversation about philosophy. So that's really how I look at it. And I think this framework is really good to help people see where their unique value is, where is it that they can contribute? You look at all the communities, all the conversations, and you find that one spot where you can have the most impact. That's interesting. I never thought about things in, in quite that way before. Although I do find in my business networking life, more people talk about philosophy than I would have ever expected. Uh, I'm sorry, they talk about what? conversations. Philosophy mm-hmm. that, than I ever would have expected. And uh, a lot of time we'll have conversations or about things like Stoic philosophy and things like that, which has become uh, had a resurgence, so to say, over maybe the last five, 10 years. Absolutely. Thanks to people like Tim Ferriss <clears throat> and Ryan Holiday and, and more besides. But uh, it's surprising how many people are um, hungry for that kind of conversation and a lot more conversations now going on about ethics and general well-being and looking after people and the planet and stuff like that. It's not nearly enough, but, but it is it is at least starting to happen. There are there are seeds of hope there. Absolutely. Which is which is good to know. But but we can be part of the solution and in in our own unique way with <clears throat> our own unique talent, skills, knowledge and everything. And certainly having a book behind you is still one of the greatest credibility things that you can have for yourself, right? Absolutely. And, you know, it's interesting what you're saying about philosophy and stoicism. And, you know, earlier I was talking about my interest being philosophy and personal development and politics. And one of the things that I think is really important, at least in this, in this age, to understand that, you know, in my opinion, we live in the, in the age of personal development. And the reason is, well, I mean, mostly like we have challenges in our times that we need to address and we have the internet that's made personal development more accessible. And what's really interesting is that if you, if you read philosophy and especially Greek philosophy, you see that there's nothing new under the sun, right? Personal development is philosophy. And what I think is great about personal development, because it, it would be naive to think that everybody's going to read philosophy 
philosophy can be really obscure, really hard. And to me, and I say that not in a pejorative way, but personal development is basically philosophy stripped from its complexity. And in some cases, it's a bad thing. I think there's, I think there's BS personal development, but I think there's great personal development. And I have a lot of admiration for people say like Tony Robbins, who bring a philosophy of empowerment to more people, you know, than Plato ever could. Right. So, and I think it's also, it's, it's interesting from a writing perspective because, you know, thinking about communities and conversations, when you go a step beyond, it's like, you have to think about, well, what kind of language do that community speaks? And there is, there is an author for every, there is an author or a messenger, if you will, for every community. Plato couldn't bring his knowledge to everybody, at least not every, let's say like the modern day American, you know, not all Americans today would be willing and interested in reading, you know, Plato's original manuscripts. Right. But what if, you know, what some personal development authors bring and they get a lot of their inspiration from these philosophers, or sometimes it's just that ideas are floating around and what these guys thought millennia ago, the same things that we're thinking about today. So we write about them. So I think it's a really good thing. Yeah. So I, I, I digressed a little bit, but. Yeah, it's, it's important. I think people do look for a structure and framework in their lives. And a lot of people end up turning to religion and religious philosophies for that. But I think there are perfectly, uh, perfectly good non-religious philosophies that are just as good and provide Absolutely. that kind of framework for living. And, and <clears throat> I personally find stoicism to be one of those ones that I have personally found far more useful than probably most of the religious philosophies that I've encountered in my life. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And to see what a, a lot of the personal development these days is also very spiritual. And I think you can look at, you can look at trends and like, where we are as societies and you see these things evolve and like things are always the same, but they're, they always take different forms. And so for some people today, it's stoicism for some, it's some other form of uh, spirituality. And it's really interesting because everything ends up coming together. And if you, if, so as a writer, your job is to kind of assess the state of the world and the trends and the different communities and the different languages that, that we speak and to be able to find your place and it's finding your place, but also like there, there are places that as, as a writer, I'm not going to go because it's just not, it's just not my place. And so you can learn from other people in those places and kind of bring that back to you. Writing is all about observation, looking at the state of the world and bringing knowledge, input, output. Yeah. Let's say then that you've got your, you've got your great vision and that you know the book that you want to write. What comes next? What comes next is a solid game plan. When I, one big mistake that I, that I see people doing, it's, it's twofold. So something that I think is important to understand is that inspiration comes from like the artist in us and it's great. And if you can feel inspired and write 5,000 words, that's awesome, but it's not going to happen every single day. It's not going to happen every single week or every single month. And so you tend to bank on that. And I think that's what happens to a lot of people. And that's why we tend to be inconsistent. We bank on inspiration. So what we want to do is we want to channel that artistic energy or that creativity, put it into a framework so that we actually have productivity and consistency. And so right. what I found to be the most effective is to build an outline that's flexible enough that tells you the what and the how. Because what happens is like, you can know what to write, but if you don't know how, if you don't plan how to write it, then you're going to be like, oh, how do I express this? Because this is really the problem. The problem isn't finding ideas. It's expressing the ideas, how to develop them. 
And so the kind of outlines that I, that I help clients with, it, it does, it does that. And the goal is to have an outline, but the outline, you can break it. It's kind of like, I have the same philosophy for writing as for like life in general. It's like the goal is to have a solid framework, a solid structure or schedule, and then chaos creeps in, which is inevitable. And then you break it and that's fine. And that's where like the richness of life lives, right? If you never let anybody break into your schedule, I think you're missing out because the best things are often spontaneous. The best thing often show up unexpected. And so you have to be open and flexible for these things. And the same, the same is true for writing. We have an outline, the goal for an outline, you know, I think I often work without an outline, truth be told. I mean, I'm also a more seasoned writer than most people, but don't necessarily need the outline. The reason the outline is important is because you want to make sure you have, you have meat on the bone in order to move forward. You don't want to stay stuck. And this is kind of like your insurance. But the thing is, you don't want to live your life just by the insurance. If some things come up, which they will. And the thing is, like, the beautiful thing about writing is that you learn about your topic as you do it because you see it on paper, you wrestle with the ideas, and you're like, hey, does that actually make sense? And then you look at the unity and like, eh, and then you reshape things and then you reconsider and then your thoughts evolve and you become you become better at thinking about what it is that you do. So anyway, it can change. Even your conclusion mm. can change. You could realize you've been wrong and that's fine. And so you have to be open and willing to break the outline that you've created. Uh, but the outline is there just to give you to give you the meat. Yeah. I I view that in a similar way to how I approach goal setting with clients is that you want to have a goal because you need a direction to move in and you want to have an idea of the kinds of things to be focusing on. But your life is going to continue to grow and evolve along the way as well, as will your vision of what you want, as will the opportunities that come your way whilst you're on your way there. The destination that you set for yourself now may not be the destination that you get to. And I think it's better to be okay with that because it's when people get very fixed on a set destination that that becomes more challenging Absolutely. and often will lead people to having more problems, more stress, even burnout and fatigue and things that will stop them from achieving success in their lives in any way, shape or form. And so it's, it's a good parallel. With yeah. And I love that you, about. you bring up goal setting because it's easy to forget, but when we reach a destination, we always, we always find another one, right? We never stop. It's like the, I guess we, it's like, it's the plague of infinite growth, right? We're just wired to like want more. And so I was actually writing in a new, it's, it's a short ebook that I'm, that I'm writing. And one of the, one of the chapters is about, you need direction, not a destination. The destination is going to come, but you need direction first. And one of my, one of my business mentors often say that directional certainty is what's most important. Yeah. You can have these goals, you can have these targets, all of that, but you have to have, you have to be certain of the direction that you're in. And what I found in my own journey, both in writing and business and relationships, et cetera, this is really what matters the most because when I seem to be so far from where I want to be then I know that the, at least the direction is correct. And you can't really go wrong with the direction because it's, it's a little, you can, you can see whether or not you're in the right direction, but like, it's not as obvious, like, it's not like yes or no, as opposed to like your, your goals, right? It's like, you know, whether you've achieved something or not. Mm -hmm. And these goals, they're like, they are they always take a little longer than you, than you initially thought they would. So it's kind of like it's comfort. So the, the direction is comfort. And I think this is so important in writing. And the other thing too, and I think that's, that's something that's not talked about a lot in writing people, you know, the typical writing advice is put together a draft, you know, it can be absolute crap. It doesn't matter, blah, blah, blah. 
and yeah, there's some truth to that. Like, I don't recommend anyone get bogged down by their perfectionism. You know, that's not a good thing. But I think it yeah. it it omits a fundamental truth about human nature. It's like we want to have direction, but we also want to be able to look back. If you've got nothing to look back to, and you can do that at a macro and micro level. Remember earlier I said, you know, I published my book and you know, it's like, you look back, it like gives you security. It's like, yes, I've done it. Yes. But then when you're writing, <clears throat> oftentimes it's like, you're, you kind of getting stuck. You're like, like, you, you know, you have the direction, but like, you're a little iffy. The thing that you do, at least me and a lot of people I know, it's like, they look back and like, you, you look for the unity. And if what you look back to is like a piece of crap then you're like, you get demotivated, right? So yeah. I think it's important to some extent to make sure that you, it's basically leaving breadcrumbs. You want to have something to look back to. Not the whole thing needs to be perfect, but you have something to, you need to have something that you can look back to and be proud of. And this actually, one of my <laughs> counterintuitive advice. And sometimes I get, sometimes people misunderstand what I mean by that. I often start working with clients to have a book started and, you know, they get stuck and, you know, they don't know why, and they can't seem to finish it. And then I open their document, like their word document and say, do you like what this looks like when you open it? And they're like, no. And so then I'm like, well, how can, how do you expect to be motivated if it looks like a junkyard, like if the, if the layout is like all over the place and the farm, is, you know, it's like almost like comic sense. I mean, I'm exaggerating, but like if you use like a yeah. ugly font and like, it's weird. Well, no wonder you're not motivated and you can't see the unity of it. So, yeah. so the first thing that I do with them is I give them, I give them a template or I, I tell them how to, how to format it to their, to their preferences. And obviously this changes when you go to like the publication stage, but like, you need to have that format that you like that you, you know, when I open my documents, I'm like, man, this looks good. Like I'm happy to be here because it's kind of like a house that you're renting. Like you don't own the house, but like, you're going to be there for a week. It's like, might as well be, be nice. Right. At least that's how we think. Yeah. But for some reason we don't think about writing this way. And so, for that reason, actually, I made a, a free template that anybody can get their hands on. And there's a guide like Great. how to write like your book from A to Z in Google Docs with the template. So we, we can actually put that in the show notes if you if you want, if you're listening. Yeah, absolutely. Like that. that would be in the show notes for everybody. Yeah, Because I think it's like it's <laughs> it's, you know, people people don't think about that. But like it's the little like psychological things that add up that get you stuck. And that's one of these things I can tell you for sure. Yeah, absolutely. I think, well, we definitely make sure that, that goes into the show notes and uh, it's exciting for me. I'll be checking it out myself. Let's say you've got your book pretty much finished and you're happy with it. What stage in the process should you be thinking? Is that the stage to think about publishing or should you be thinking about that a bit earlier on? <clears throat> that's a great question. I think you should be thinking about it as soon as you begin. And you know, when I was talking about the grand vision earlier, I, the people that I work with, they've already, they've already got like a lot going on. And oftentimes they either have a business or they have like a successful career. And so they have all these assets, I guess we could say. And so the book becomes one of these assets. And so you want to position that asset within all the other assets. And so when it comes to the publishing and the marketing, yes, you should be, you should be thinking about it, you know, as you, as you write it. And I don't, I don't recommend getting bugged down by it. You know, there's some, there are different schools of thought. There's a school of thought that like, it's like anything goes, you know, write whatever, like transcript your webinar, put it in a book. That's horrible. Right. That's not my school of thought. My school of thought is, yeah, you, yeah. you think, you're deliberate about your, your publishing and your marketing strategy from the get go. 
but you focus on the writing and the quality of the book, the concept and the big idea and the lesson. And so when it comes to the publishing, then, you know, I think the best thing that you can do before you start writing the, the, the book. And so that's provided, you know, exactly who is it for, what does it do and how does it do it? You start building your, your list of contacts, or I guess what they call in business your dream 100. And you look at the kinds of platforms, the kind of people who you could develop a relationship with who could possibly promote your book. And you look at like where your target reader hangs out and you start, you start doing your research. You start building those relationships because these things take time and you can either, you can either work your way in, get free promotion from like public figures or, you know, brands for whom it makes sense, or you can buy your way in through like paid advertisement. But if you want to have a good shot at like at working your way in, then you want to start early on. And it's, it's, it's an extensive list. It takes time to do. And so hmm. that's something that you can, that you can start doing right away. And if you have a business, it's the same, it's the same list. I mean, whether you realize it or not, it's like my dream client for my business, this is my dream reader too. Like, cause I mean, I cater, I cater to the same person. I mean, I'm, I'm as an individual, I'm multifaceted, but like there's a coherence, you know, I, I help sure. people write books. And as a writer, I write about philosophy, politics, personal development. The person who wants to hire me, my dream client is basically the same person who want to read that book that I'm writing. So it all comes together. And so, yeah. Yeah. It makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Let me, let me ask you then, do you generally encourage people along the self-publishing track or is it still a good idea to work with publishers? <clears throat> Most of my clients go the self-publishing path. I, I work, I haven't had a client yet who's decided, okay, we do like, we try the traditional publishing route and you know, that takes a lot more time. It depends. Like I would be, I would be more than happy to work with someone who wants to take that route. Now, the first thing that I do with clients is help them determine whether or not it's, it's a good idea because, you know, it takes time and we want to be mindful of like the, how we spend the time. I mean, I can, you know, it's tough. Like, and these days, traditional publishers even though, even if they give you a book deal, they will still expect you to like do the marketing hype and all of the things. And, you know, they take a lot more of the profit mm -hmm. and, you know, I have a lot of respect and admiration for the, for the traditional publishing world, but it, it does seem as though, you know, as years go by, <clears throat> it makes less and less sense for authors to, to, unless they have a huge audience, unless they, unless they can guarantee they're going to be a bestseller. Right. And the truth about the bestseller yeah. is that there's no, there's no secret sauce. It's a numbers game. Like the, the way that publishers work is like, let's say like the bestseller rash ratio is like one to five or like one to 10, they'll get authors, they'll get authors in the door. And then every, every five books is going to be a bestseller. They're going to make up for the losses on the other ones. And so, yes, they're careful. They're deliberate about who they let in, but there, there's an arbitrary aspect to it still. Right. And so I wouldn't want someone to feel discouraged because they got rejected. Like I, I I've got my fair share of rejections from traditional publishers. And then I decided to go the, the self-published route because it just made sense, more sense. I'm not opposed to going the traditional route, but it just depends on what makes sense. I have a friend, he had a literary agent and he decided to part ways because what would be expected of him didn't make sense financially in terms of how much profit he would keep. So if you're someone like, I don't know, say Jordan Peterson, like he became so well-known and it was so controversial. Like there was no way his book wasn't going to be a bestseller and there was no way mm -hmm. like he wouldn't sell, he wouldn't get a book deal from a big house like Penguin. So makes sense. But yeah. for a lot of people, it doesn't. Right. 
Yeah, I, I get that. And when I first thought about writing a book myself, one of the first things I did was speak to my friend, a very good friend of mine who has had several <laughs> books published. And one of the things she gave me some great resources, actually. And one of the best bits of advice she said was don't finish, don't finish the book straight away. If you're going to go with that publishing route, you're far better off to use the strategy of planning the book and looking for what they actually ask you for. Because if you go onto the publisher's websites, they will nearly always ask you for a specific kind of information. They want several chapters of the book. They want to be able to influence the uh, way the book's written. If they don't like it or if it's not in a style that they think is going to work for them, they want you to be able to change that. And people, if they finish their book, generally are a bit more resistant mm -hmm. to doing that. And they want to know the marketing ideas that you have and exactly what audience it's for, how it's going to be serving, all this kind of stuff. I mean, filling out a book proposal for publishers is about as much work as writing the book. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Really. And thanks for bringing this up because, you know, my goal is that even if a client goes the, the self-published route, it's as good of a quality as traditional publishing. And one of the ways that I do that is, I basically force all my clients to do the book proposal before they write the book, because there's a reason traditional publishers do it this way. Like they invest their money yeah. and they expect an ROI, they're a business. And so they just, they leverage risk, right? And there's a reason they ask you for a book proposal. You need to do your homework and book proposal is the best thing you can do to nail your strategy. And like, look at your competitive titles, look at how it fits, how it fits in, et cetera. And then, you know, can write all the chapters. And so even the, the clients who go the self-published route, I have them do that exercise anyway. And it is, it is a fair bit of work, but it's worth it. And that's how, because I mean, the biggest problem you see with self-published books, like beyond like the micro stuff, like bad grammar or like poor presentation or like you know, ugly covers. The biggest problem is like people don't take the time to enter a conversation where they should. It's like, imagine, imagine you're at a dinner party and everybody's just like talking over one another, repeating the same things. That's basically what happens in the self-publishing world because people don't take the time to look at what other people wrote. And so you're not driving that conversation forward. If you do that, you're merely making it stagnate. And so, yes, you can use it for your benefit. You can use it for authority and credibility. And if I see your book, John, and I don't know that a, a thousand other people wrote like the exact same thing, then I might say, like, oh, cool. Like John wrote this book. But then it's like at a deeper level, you could have contributed more by finding that exact spot, like that exact angle so it's kind of like, it's a, yeah. it, it's my philosophical position. And I think it's like, it's, it also like from a personal development perspective, because I do believe that writing is a great tool for personal development. It challenges you way more than if you just take these thoughts you have right now, like these unpolished thoughts, these unresearched thoughts and put them in the book. What you want to do is really look at everything else and, you know, contrast your ideas yeah. to others, compare and really like research and polish. So that's how I look at it. And it's okay. good for the yeah. conversation It's good for readers and it's good for you. I, I see a lot of people in the space that I like writing about, which is persuasion and uh, influence stuff who are mostly just regurgitating the masters <laughs> yeah. uh, and not, re as you say, not really adding to the conversation. They might be putting stuff in a format and could still have value for people. And sometimes it's just uh, if they don't come across some of the maybe more master works in this stuff from the experts, getting a paraphrased or reworked version of it might actually be very helpful to them. But does it advance the conversation? Does it develop things more? No. And it's amazing, actually, how much that happens. And I see it mostly in Kindle publishing, perhaps, mm -hmm. more, than, more than anywhere else, because it is so easy to, to just publish. Exactly. And I'm sure there are people who just pay someone and say, hey, look, you know, put a bunch of it's stuff like, together. Yeah, like an unresearched version of like, uh, Robert Cialdini's persuasion. Exactly. 
And so, yeah, but the thing is like, <clears throat> and see, here's a funny thing, right? There's nothing wrong with someone who's not an expert writing something about. So like, let's say you read all the books and like you, you have like a lot of experience in one thing. You can write a book and if you're clear about the fact like this is who I am, this is what I'm doing in this book. This is not like I'm not a PhD like Robert Cialdini. This book is for people who want to have a better understanding of influence. And this is like a non like a theoretical, it's just like experience-based or whatever. It's fine. And there's certainly a room for that in the market because there are a lot of like academic books. There are a lot of general public books written by experts like Robert Cialdini. Yeah. And then there's a room for YouTube, but you just got to think about what that place is. And it's not yeah. that hard, but you know, sometimes people skip that part of the process and that's how you end up with a, a, a torrent of, you know, not very good books. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I have a two part question for you. And the, the first part is, is there a sort of optimal level for a length of nonfiction book? And the other part to that is how long should it take someone to write a reasonably well-researched book? Yeah, that's a great question. I would say like for nonfiction, in my estimation, the bare minimum, if you want to have like a serious like if you if you want the book to be taken seriously it has to be at least thirty thousand words but that's like bare minimum forty thousand plus is decent fifty thousand and over is good the average like <clears throat> i mean i always look at it like the trade like paperbacks you buy like you know if you read like what's his name daniel pink or like robert cialdini mm -hmm. like all these like big name nonfiction authors there's a there's a there's an average length and that length is about sixty thousand. could be more or less it goes up to like eighty thousand. and there's a reason it's because you know developing like having substance you know takes space right so yeah. If you're not like, and it depends like on the purpose of the book too. I mean, some people write books, it's mostly for their business uh, and that's fine. And, you know, but if you want a book to be taken seriously, I'd say like minimum 30,000 words and then like 60,000 words put you in the, in the, you know, it's higher caliber provided that it's, you know, well-researched and, and so on. And then your second question about how much time it should take you it should be and so it, it it broadly depends if you're starting from zero and like have no research and you have you just have a question you want to answer it's probably going to take you a year minimum like i read this book called captivology and you know somewhere in the book the, the guy mentioned so he was like it was a tech guy in silicon valley and he wanted to study what captivates people. So like, it's, an, you know, psychology and all that stuff. And that's not his background. So he studied it for about two years and wrote the book in about two years. And that that's reasonable. That's a good book. Nothing too crazy, but it's a good book. If you are writing about stuff you already know, research you've already done, I'd say it's a matter of, a, you know, months, four to six months, I think is a good length. If you're writing something really, really substantial might take you more. It obviously depends on how, how much focus you put on it. A, a lot of my clients, you know, they're juggling different things. They have their business, they have their career. So, so they can't, Much you know, if you, if you, if that's all you were doing every day, then it would take you like a few, a few months. Otherwise like 46 months, or if you need more research, I'll, I'll give you one example. Like in writing this book, it's, a, it's actually a grammar book for people to improve their writing. And a lot of it comes from like materials I've already written. And so I'm on a, I'm on a tight deadline, basically got to finish the draft by the end of the month. And right. I'm on pace to do that. And I'm writing about, I'm working on it maybe like two hours a day an evening once I'm done with the other things and that's working well. Sure. So it, it does depend on how much materials you've already produced in the past, how much you're repurposing that. 
So, yeah. So I, I'd say though, like to, to answer your question explicitly, I'd say like four to six months is a reasonable time frame. Might do it in a little less, might do it in a little more, but that's like a good length, yeah. a good time. Okay. I appreciate, I appreciate that. Thank you. Yeah. It's hard to give a specific answer on that. I know, but it does depend to some degree on the individual <laughs> and circumstances, etc. The more you ride, the faster you are to you. Of course, of course, you get you exercise your brain and writing muscles yeah. and uh, you speed things up. So as as we, we need to start wrapping things up, unfortunately, but uh, so many more questions I could ask you. Then you said you shared a resource with us earlier. You mentioned your resource, your PDF. Are there any other books or resources that you would recommend people to check out? Yes. So in terms of resources, I would say... Well, so there are many, many things. If you're looking to, well, I have a lot of ideas. So is, is it to like improve the writing or like get to like more about the thinking? Let's, let's say it's just to get a book done. Get a book done. A book I'd published. say so. Okay. It's not released yet, but I'm working on this short ebook called writing for prominence. That's the working title. This is going to be the best resource to understand how to get started. And I don't think there's anything quite like it on the market. <clears throat> At least I haven't found it. So that's why I'm writing it. And it goes over some of the frameworks that I teach clients. It's an introduction and there's going to be exercises in it so that you can write in it and really get started thinking about the communities and all of these things. So to get started with writing, I would say that'd be the best resource. If right. you already have something that you're working on, I'd suggest get my free template. I will put the, the link in the show notes, but otherwise that would be really to get started. Then, you know, if you're wanting to improve the writing itself, make it, you know, better, there are a couple of resources you can check out, like the elements of style and never get so on the writing well by William Zinser. It's a great book. Otherwise, I would say check out my podcast, The Word Leader. There's over at the time, at this time, there's 170 episodes or five minute episodes, and they're right. just bits of knowledge about writing. So you can do some binge listening. And uh, there's a lot of there's a lot of helpful advice about how to think about writing and how to do it. So I'd say, yeah, the podcast, the word leader, and then when it comes out, which should be sometime, sometime this month or in June, writing Great. for prominence. So you can just follow me on social media or Trivium writing on social media, and then you'll get, you'll get the updates about the book. Great. So for people who do want to come and find out more about you, they can check you out on social media on Trivium Writing. Do you have a website as well? Yes, it's TriviumWriting.com. Great. Fantastic. So links to all of that are going to be in the show notes for everyone who wants to go and find out more. And Leandre, I hope I said that a bit better this time. Thank you for coming and joining me today on Speaking of Influence and for sharing all this knowledge. And definitely we'll be checking out more of your information and looking forward to the publication of your book, Writing for Prominence. I will certainly be giving that a read. Thank you for everything today. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. Thanks for tuning in. I hope you've enjoyed the show. If you did, remember to subscribe and don't miss any amazing upcoming episodes. Whilst you're here, pop over to presentinfluence.com and grab yourself a free copy of the last minute presentation checklist. Speakers are telling me that it's really helping them out and it might just save your butt someday. As it's Pride season starting, I have recorded a very special episode of the show with the uncompromising and hilarious Jordan Power. He's a great podcaster, a very funny comedian, and we discuss some very adult themes in our show together. You're going to love it and make sure that it is adult ears only tuning in for that one. Also coming up, Abby Weiss, where we talk about getting your message out there. She's great at helping coaches and speakers really get clear on the message and getting out into the world. Join us for those shows. Have an amazing week. Go and make great things happen. See you soon.